0: Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hey folks, um, before we get into Starving for Darkness here, uh, my co-host from the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Gregory Eric, and I are going to tell you real quick about some magicians we know at Evluma. That's E-V-L-U-M-A dot com. And you hover over products, that's right, and click on Dark Sky Friendly, Greg. You've got to check out the magicians at Evluma, E-V-L-U-M-A dot com, Greg Eric.
1: How many vendors or how many lighting manufacturers, I should say, are actually doing this? None. Other than None. They're the yep. only ones that are actually focusing on it, putting product out there and saying, hey, we're going to tackle this issue head on and we, we have product for you. They cover it right there. You'll see it on the website. Call it Kelvin temperature. They've got them all. 2K up to 5K. 2K, lensing. not 27K. 2K, brother. Two. And they yeah. have 22K. Yeah. You know, that's something that not everybody has or not anybody has. Uh, lensing diffusion, shields, and then dimming. Of course, you want dimming. You always talk about it, the importance of that in exterior Controls. lighting. They've got it all with their products.
0: You've got to go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Right now, here comes Starving for Darkness.
2: Hello listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. We're so excited to have our guest today, James Carl Fisher. Dr. Fisher operates the Zoological Lighting Institute, ZLI, a 501c3 dedicated to supporting the sciences of light and life through the arts for animal welfare and wildlife conservation. Former council member of the Royal Institute of British Architects, Dr. Fisher advocates for the integration of biodiversity loss mitigation strategies in architecture by calling attention to the importance of natural light cycles for all living things. Dr. Fisher, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. And we start every episode with the same request. Could you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe?
3: I can, and thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here too. I want to start off by saying that, I'm really thrilled. Um, yes, well, feeling of awe. I think the way I'm going to uh, describe the most stunning experience for me actually had to do with my students. Um, I uh, used to teach at the New School, just, just briefly, but I would take my students out to a, uh, an observatory. It's called the Jenny Jump Observatory near Uh, the Pennsylvania border of New Jersey. And uh, I would forbid them flashlights to start. So after we parked the car, we would walk along a gravel path. uh, And on one side of the path, there was a drop of about 50 feet. And on the other was a slope up with trees on either side. And because of the trees, you couldn't see the stars. All you could really see um, was maybe a little glimmer of light far off in the distance especially after coming out of the car, you know, you have like the phones and things like that that people are using. Anyway, um, the feeling of awe it actually had to do with the release of anxiety. The students were always terrified. And the, the lesson I would give them was very clear. I said, look, if you hear crunching under your foot, it means you're on gravel. If you don't hear crunch, you're not on gravel. Move back to the gravel. Okay? And we would walk about maybe, let's say about 100 meters right, under this tunnel of trees. At the beginning, they were terrified, right? By the time we got to the end, the, the tunnel opens up and you have the observatory there and the telescopes of you know all the different universities and clubs in, in New Jersey and there. But you could see the stars, and it would just open everything out. And you still didn't have any artificial light whatsoever. All you had were stars. Uh, and, and sky, and but the student's eyes would be adjusted. And so that anxiety was released. So the awe I would say in this point, it, it, it's not that like being in touch with something, that's not really the experience I'm talking about.
0: Hmm. The
3: experience was just being released from that pain of anxiety that was caused by the inverted relationship of light. You know, that like when it's gone, you feel better. It's just a question of getting to that moment. So that, that would be my, my, my story, I think, you know, to kind of set things up, too, uh, for what you know, I'd love to, wow. to talk about today.
2: I think that's such a great story because mm. it really talks about the experience that most people are feeling with regard to light addiction, which is that there's a bit of a barrier or a gateway to get from the bright thinking mind to the dark thinking mind and that that gateway is actually a few minutes and um, it can really take people a little bit of time to experience the benefits of darkness and to see that shift and feel it so i love the story in the way that you describe it uh, which goes through people's initial fears but then realizing that there's an amazing benefit that we're really forgetting so it's a fantastic story and i i want to jump in now to your work can you describe the purpose and function of the Zoological Lighting Institute?
3: I can. Uh, the purpose is essentially to provide support for applied photobiology research. Uh, you know, we have a mission that we crafted that says supporting the sciences of light and life through the arts for animal welfare and wildlife conservation. Uh, but we set it up as a 501c3 as a way to give money and to find funding for this kind of work because we found it was lacking. Um, And in part, it was uh, to improve animal care, but it was also uh, set up to um, ensure that the photobiological work that was done, was done, um, well, let's just say correctly, you know, without being arrogant about it. Uh, But we wanted to make sure that the biological studies uh, were based in physical optics, you know, in physical light ra- and electromagnetic radiation, physical terms, rather than industry standards, which weren't really appropriate to the field. So the purpose of ZLI, if I say it again, would be to find funding to guide the research. It wasn't simply just to fund anything. It was to guide the research in ways that you could make better decisions either with regard to animal care in zoos and aquariums or with regard of environmental development like hmm. architecture or landscape. Um, because the metrics that were being used, they, they, were more, I think statistical is a good way to say it, you know, with correlations that may or may have not uh, may or may not have been um, correct or understood. So that was really the purpose of ZLI, was to find that funding to guide the research so that decision-making could be improved.
2: I love that because mm-hmm. I do think that there's so much that's left on the table with a statistic. And and your work gets into the mental health of animals. And I think that that's the, the type of thing, statistically, you you would never understand through a statistic. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really important lens that you began with. And uh, so the Z, ZLI has four endeavors or pursuits, and they are photo sciences research, film and media, sustainable design, and education. And photo sciences research, um, can we start there? Um, what is exactly the research that you're doing um, with this pursuit?
3: Well, you know, with, with ZLI, we actually don't do research ourselves. You know, I have to mm-hmm. be really clear about that. Uh, we, we support the research, but that being said, the simple fact of organizing, uh, the photo sciences, uh, guides, the, like it structures the research. So in a way we are kind of, you know, setting the experiments in the way that we describe it. Uh, and that would be surrounding what we call the ZLI framework. Uh, I say Z, sometimes I say C, sometimes I say Z because we're international. So again, yeah, and I started in the UK, so it was ZLI there and, you know, in the US it's mm. ZLI. Um, But uh, uh, with this framework that we set up, because we wanted to make sure we were being comprehensive in providing funding, uh, and that we really built uh, something worthwhile, we divided the photosciences into three categories. Uh, Photophysiology, essentially how light affects the body. And in this, we divided that further into three categories of biophysics, biochemistry, And bioluminescence which is a little weird to think of that as separate from the other two but those three really make up photophysiology the second category uh in our framework is uh sensory ecology and there we look at visual ecology how eyes function um because it's going to be and how eyes function in relation to a whole organism because it's going to be different for different species uh, in, in terms of how that overall hmm. mechanism works, right? And then there's animal coloration. Uh, and then finally, we have cross sensory modalities the ways that one sense, in sensory input in an animal might affect another. So that's sensory ecology, those three categories. And, and uh, coloration is part of that because it, it gets into fitness relationships and how those work. The third category. Uh, we struggled with a title, but eventually we settled on integrative uh, biology, integrative photobiology, and there we're really looking at three categories. We're looking at community resourcing, that is to say, how uh, uh, animals and human animals relate to other animals because of light, right? And and it, community resourcing because most often that focuses on food and predator-prey relationships. Uh, there, are, there are other aspects to it, but that's the main one. The second category is epidemiology, looking at how disease vectors uh, occur, how disease is both uh, impacted in terms of its severity, but also its spread. So we look at the relationship of light under that epidemiological uh, category. And then the, the final uh, category here is phenology, time. Time is actually governed by light in nature. Uh, I know, you know, now we look at things like cesium atoms, right, you know, as a a universal metric, but that's a, it's actually a standard that's very removed from how ecological systems work or how animals will use time uh, as a resource. (laughs) So this uh, phenological component, it makes up the third category. It speaks to things like seasonality, day cycles, sequences you know, of light uh, and, and how the sequences of natural light impact uh, living processes, whether it's biological or ecological. We say integrative biology as the title of this category because we want to take that ecological investigation of light and put it into a biological format where we understand the underlying process at this like individuated level as well. So, so those are the three categories, photophysiology, sensory ecology, and integrative biology. Those are our three categories. And so the photo sciences department uh, really offers grants and scholarships in each of those categories when we get applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but the, the overall idea is to build up a, um, not necessarily our own library, but to build up research in these fields. Mm-hmm. And, and quite frankly, you know, we look at that framework as a standard for, um, for photobiological study uh, because what we were finding is that um, when developers or lighting designers or architects when uh, or, or animal care specialists in a zoo or aquarium, when they wanted to research something about light, there were all of these different categories scattered through hay walls and university levels, hmm. and it wasn't organized. So I, I always say, like to anybody who comes into ZLI, I say... You know, this is the most important thing we have because it's like it's like crafting a plan if you craft that plan then you can achieve goals so that framework mm. gives mm. us specific uh, uh focal points to build up these applied photobiological um uh knowledge the applied photobiological knowledge it does photosciences sciences
0: in, in our correspondence you had mes- mentioned that there were three initiatives that you have going on right now mm. that you wanted to unpack. Um, let's talk about the ZALA animal welfare state, um, stations. First of all, what is Z-A-L-A? And then describe yeah. the ZALA animal welfare stations.
3: I can, um, well, ZALA stands for zoo and aquarium lighting assessment, zoo and aquarium lighting assessment. And we, we chose that cause obviously ZALA is a very cool zoo kind of <laughs> name, right? But, but, um, uh, but, it, but it also focuses, you know, with um, the Zala stations uh, are an attempt to uh, uh, franchise and monetize uh, animal welfare monitoring in an independent way. Uh, so it's a franchise, is that the way we're conceiving this. Uh, and so the Zala station, the idea of the Zala station is that animal welfare monitoring, which is fairly common in zoos and aquariums, Uh, we put it on a schedule, so it's a 24 seven endeavor, just like you would have enrichment or other, you know, serious, um, you know, efforts. Uh, And with those animal welfare metrics, we actually prioritize light in that. So, and uh, a typical animal welfare metric, uh, well, the best, I'll say the best ones because it's, you know, it's obviously what we we, we think are best. Uh, The five domains of animal welfare. Uh, it's a document that came out in the 90s, you know, and it's been worked on since then. But each of their criteria speaks to an aspect of welfare for animals. And, and this includes humans, too, at the end of the day. But it includes um, nutrition, health, uh, environment, and then behavior, right? And there are metrics for each of those that you can measure on a regular basis. Ment- the mental domain is the last in the original formulation. So and it, but it doesn't have metrics, right? In in the uh, in the in the current scheme. What we did for, for Azala, and when I say we, I mean Xavier Villanova, Claudia Tay. Uh, you know, they're really the uh, the key people uh, with me on this. Um, what we did is that we we looked at these five domains and the existing metrics. The Wildlife Reserve Singapore has an amazingly good uh, animal welfare metric. Um, uh, there's a couple Detroit Zoo in the US has a very good one. Um, but what we did, we looked at the five domains and we said, well, wait a minute. We have this mental domain that everyone says is difficult to quantify, right? And we said, well, how do we quantify that? What do we mean by all of this? So we we wrote a piece called Enlightenment uh, that started exploring some of these issues because we're not afraid to, you know, to admit we don't know something and we want to go forward, right? So we looked at that and, and we said, well, if we're talking about mental health, mental domain, the mental well being, right? We're talking about consciousness, right? And there's another document, and I know this can get to be a bit much, so this will be the last external document <laughs> I refer to. Um, the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness came out in 2012. And it essentially recognized non human animal life as being conscious because the hmm. physical mechanisms were the same. Hmm they were located in perception right hmm. uh, not in, not back of house it's located in consciousness is located in perception so for hmm. our part the first thing that we said was well wait a minute if it's in perception what's being perceived right hmm. and of course for us that yeah hmm. I mean that's that's light right hmm. so uh, I mean it could, it's other things too but if we're talking about
0: but light and consciousness, darkness. Like darkness is well, perceived see, as well. We, we
3: actually don't use we actually don't use the word darkness okay we just look because we, we come at this and no it's a good uh, it's believe me i understand why but like we come in as physicists so starlight is as much light as sunlight mm-hmm. it's just a different order of magnitude right mm-hmm. and it has different you know i mean you could look at all different kinds of parameters but we just say it's, it's it's the same thing it's just it's it's like um i know we say cold and hot temperature isn't fundamentally different mm. at you know minus 20 degrees as it is at plus 20 degrees it's still temperature right mm-hmm. light's kind of the same way so what we started thinking about in terms of this mental domain is that well wait a minute at these lower orders of magnitude of light right those are actually that's actually habitat that's being perceived by animals that function very well at those levels most animals do function much better like after twilight than they do during the day. And so we started looking at that saying, okay, but wait a minute. The perceptual mechanisms for every animal are going to be a little different too. And they're going to function differently. So, you know, I know in the lighting industry, they talk about scotopic and photopic vision, mm-hmm. right? Like those got to be very popular words. and and But it speaks to something very significant. It says that you know, in, say, those lower light levels, uh, eyes are functioning, and the nervous system that's behind the eyes and the hormones behind all that, they're functioning uh, differently than they do in the day. Now, this is this is a bit of a twist. We don't need to do this for our animal welfare monitoring, but I'm going to throw it in here because this is the place to talk about it. If we're going to talk with Cambridge and say that... Um, speak along with Cambridge, and we say that, well, all, all animals are conscious, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm talking about human consciousness, I can talk about states of consciousness and mm-hmm. modes of consciousness. Why wouldn't I do that with non-human animals, right? Absolutely. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. And right. And it's because like, we, we don't speak to them, right? We can't, like, it, it's mm-hmm. inaccessible. Uh, and so, but, but there's no, but what we're talking about here are different perceptual states, right? So mm-hmm. I'm making that leap to say, look, you know, different perceptual states, there's different states of consciousness. And now why is this important? When we get back into the mental domain, right? obviously the way I'm leading all of this, we, we wanna measure light as a metric for mental welfare, mental domain, mm-hmm. right? Not because it's giving a sense of comfort, what we would do like as a lighting designer, right? But what it does for the opportunity of an animal to explore those different states, that's where we differ. Um, we're, we're not interested in comfort. What we're really interested in is opportunity, right? And 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 fitness. Like, what are the limits, right? You know, what are we avail- what What's available to us, and what are the limits? That's a big difference for us in how we approach animal welfare. And say a zoo or aquarium, we want to really introduce how. Uh, what are the opportunities to explore these different states you know perceptual consciousness uh in that condition so anyway this is a long way away but it's actually still contained within the zala stations right yes what what we've done we've inverted those five domains and put it put the mental domain first and which is that's a big difference Mm -hmm. so we put the mental domain first and then the other categories what we do environment health uh nutrition behavior what we do is show how light is important for each of those categories with metrics, and but the metrics go beyond that. Of course, there's, there's, you know, the Singapore model is really what we're because of Claudia, we're really developing that Singapore model mm-hmm. so that you know we're focusing on a measurable approach to mental health. So there's all the stations. The idea of these stations is to provide the data that then decisions can be made, right? You provide data, so data-driven science, not to dictate what the outcome is gonna be for a zoo or aquarium, or, or a community for that matter. You could do this You could do this anywhere. You could do this in an animal research center, you could do it in a wetland, you could do it in a city. The, the idea though, is that you provide the data that says, look, this is how far away we are from a natural condition, condition that determined the fitness relationships. A zoo or aquarium then has the choice to say, ah, this is affecting the mental health of my animal by by limiting opportunity uh, or limiting fitness relationships. Uh, And this works for all the others too, for nutrition and nutrition in particular, uh, but it goes down the line. So what these animal welfare stations do is that they provide this data. They also provide a public face. Um, Zoos and aquariums are always under fire. They are always, always. answering yeah. question, right? And um, it's a problem uh, because these institutions represent the community relationships with animals, mm-hmm.
0: right? And yep.
3: some of them are publicly funded, some of them are private. Uh, but you take something like a Sea World, right? And uh, uh, we had board members from SeaWorld on our on our you know uh, on the original uh, our original board when ZLI was founded, right? And wonderful people, actually. And, um, but, but that being said, when that blackfish movie came out, right. Um, there are a lot of valid points in the blackfish movie. just say that right away. Um, that being said, SeaWorld itself focused on wildlife conservation as well. It lost a lot of that, the ability to do that in the years preceding that movie, right? Because they didn't really respond to the public, you know, relations well. Um, and they didn't and I don't just mean public relations. I mean, how they handled their reaction to it, it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't good. It wasn't well done in my opinion. But that being said, all that really good work that they were doing, uh, it suffered. and they became more of an entertainment company.
2: Mm-hmm. They still
3: do fund that work. They still but for a while, they were you know they laid off so much of that staff that was responsible for animal care, the things you would want, you mm-hmm. know and wildlife conservation. Now they're actually much larger than they were before. Blackfish, much more financially lucrative now, but in part it's because they switched focus to more of an entertainment venue.
0: Okay, so an animal
3: welfare. Let, let me
0: let me switch back to the Zala thing here for a second. You had mentioned I know yes, we had please, please. later on in the in the talk we had talked about franchising, but you said that is it possible for other zoos and aquariums to become franchisees of the Zala Animal Welfare Station program?
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Th- thank you for bringing it back to that. Sure. Um, yes, absolutely. The, the plan right now is that there are two different types of stations. One would be uh, ZLI owned, ZLI owned, that a aquarium would host, uh, and in that case, ZLI would you know operate the staff. We would do day to day operations, uh, provide the metrics as an independent uh, presence on site. And that independence because of the risk management tr- and trust issues of a self-reporting facility that independence we, we feel is really necessary that's the first scheme mm-hmm. this uh, by scheme i just mean plan in the european sense mm-hmm. sure the the second scheme the franchise scheme
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, which i always lead with but the franchise scheme is actually to operate these stations uh, which, which involve an actual physical building on site, you know, a yurt. You know, we have them mm-hmm. in yurts right now. Um, but it's on site, so it's visible mm-hmm. as an independent monitoring station. In that case, uh, we understand that zoos and aquariums have little money, right? They do exhibits all the time, but those are always funded by external sources, generally. What we would uh, uh, offer in this case would be a new exhibit, that's franchised. So okay. uh, a zoo or aquarium would invest in one of these using sponsors and donors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're investing in animal welfare. We provide uh, the standards just, just like any other franchise, you know, opportunity that's out there. We provide the branding, we provide the metrics, which are really important, I mean, mm-hmm. that is the, the brand, right, you know,
0: the Zala brand. But do do you need, like, uh, a, it has to be a zoo or an aquarium and people that are have scientific cool. execution knowledge, based on these metrics and caring for the animals? Um, the the equipment actually, and the monitoring uh, in, I think in both of these
3: cases, the, the, there's a level of expertise that they need. Mm-hmm. In the first case, ZLI will do the hiring and we will we, we will yes. put people on site locally. In the second instance, that could be zoo or aquarium staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if it's franchised, it, like any other franchisee, they, take care of the employees they would and no grant we would provide training we would provide uh you know updates and we would use species 360 which is one of the top is the top data management uh, uh service for for wasa which is the world association of zoos and aquariums like the toronto zoo to like a the
0: toronto area. zoo could be a candidate for this like a t- the, oh absolutely yeah, yeah. right okay yeah. and so and what uh, about and private zoos like what about smaller i know <laughs> they've shut down there used to be a lot of private zoos in ontario um and those were the best ones to go to because <laughs> mm-hmm. you would have a lion right in front of you like um, you know there would yes. be a lion right there um but the, a lot of them got shut down and stuff like that but can these private zoos also participate in the zala program
3: absolutely uh, absolutely i mean, you know with the budget that we're looking at for a typical let's say flagship station you know uh it's typically a three to five million dollar budget and if you think of, uh, you know, a cost, you know, mm-hmm. to get these things set up and running. Wow. <laughs> um, but if you look at, well, I know it, it sounds like a lot, but if you look at, say, like uh, any new exhibit in a zoo, you're talking 10, sure. 20, 30 million dollar projects. Oof. And, and gotcha. essentially, this is an, ex- yeah, I mean, something like, and, you know, it, it depends, of course, on the scale of the zoo. Uh, but um, development is expensive, you know, public development. So we're, we're, we're much lower than that. Uh, But what we're saying, though, with these exhibits, they're not a Mm -hmm. one-off. What they are is an exhibit that qualifies the rest of the facility. Um, Now, for a small zoo, what I would actually suggest is that they host a ZLI station. And something like that can be done for under a million. And again, what we would do is set up a small building on site, hire staff. The key is it has to be done in perpetuity, so we would have like a five-year commitment. Uh, um, And the reason for that is it takes time to develop the community relationships where the reason for animal welfare uh, is clear to the public. So, you know, I mentioned the monitoring aspect of these Zala stations, but really um, a a, a key component of them is that they link development in the community back to the zoo or aquarium. Let me say how that means. It it would take like a five million dollar exhibit. Right, which is a small exhibit for, for, say, like something like the Toronto Zoo or, or, or whatnot. Um, if you take something like that, right, you would typically get a sponsor in the community. You know, it could be a bank, could be a, you know, a soft drink company. It could be anything, right? And the money is important. But what we would ask with the Zala Station is that we get a SDG, Sustainable Design Goal, commitments from those sponsors, so in Toronto, where you have a bird collision mitigation is very uh, 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 there's good awareness around that issue. What we would say is that if we may wanted to make the Toronto Zoo completely bird friendly, no exterior exposed glass, right, and that, that and that's you know without treatment of some kind. The way we would handle that would be to say, and the Zala station would be there to do the monitoring that would make it evident why this is important. Um, but for that next step in fixing any issues, what we would do is set up a a, a a mitigation plan. So, you know, with a master plan in a zoo, typically there'll be, you know, projects, you know, listed out, okay, in five years, we want to do, you know, a new grill exhibit, we want to do a new, you know, uh, Avery, we want to do a hospital. What we would do as kind of preventative care is say, okay, these are the areas of a zoo that need or aquarium that need remediation, right? We want to see these areas be bird friendly. Or this applies for artificial light as well. We want to see these transformations. We can't do it all at once because it's too expensive. It's uh, it's a, it's a problem. Instead, we lay the plan out so that say a bank would come in and say, okay, yeah, I will as a bank, I will contribute to this project but the zoo in turn will say, that's great, but your bank needs to be bird friendly too. So the bank in the community is then remediated along with that project in the zoo. And what that does it on, there are two, two sides to the benefit here. From the zoo itself, there's that benefit in that it gets its project done, but it also then has awareness in the community of the good work it's doing. So, you know, when we talk about SeaWorld before, Nobody knew of that good work. It wasn't publicized in the same way, you know, as as other types of of endeavors. So that uh, SDG commitment approach is really about generating awareness for the zoo going out. Now, for a bank, what that does is it becomes the sponsor that cares, and they do. And they get to show their clients, hey, look, you've got an issue. Bank with us. We're responsible. We'll open a dialogue. We're not simply a nameless, faceless corporation. We care about the environment because the environment is how you stay financially productive, right? So that that marketing cascades. One of the big issues with bird collisions with windows is that you know you have these spectacular issues with high rises, right? You know you'll have a hundred birds will fly into a, a glass tower you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a week, right, you know, or a day even in some cases. But that's, un- unfortunately, that's not the worst of it. The worst comes in suburban communities, where you have glass next to foliage and birds. So the numbers are actually much higher in suburbia than they are, say, in a city. Hmm. The only thing is you don't see it because it's one by one. It's like, hmm. it's like poverty, you know, the only way you fix poverty is one by one, right? You can't do it all at once. So with something like this, getting back to the bank, the bank, rather than simply saying, oh, there's that zoo, oh, zoos make me sad, or, you know, I, you know, those suffering and all, it's not about that. It's about what are we going to do, right, in a practical sense. So this relationship between a bank and a zoo then goes to the suburban community by people who are using those services that are made aware of how they can fix a problem they didn't even know they had. So it may be something like screening on glass, right? Getting away from that idea that if you see something, it's transparent. You know, Mm -hmm. we all know that that's absolutely not the case, right? In terms Mm -hmm. of like business and finance. So, you know, here the next step would be, look, glass kills birds. No two ways about it. You have a glass, you have a bird, you have a dead bird, right? Mm -hmm. So the next way around this is to say, well, how do we fix it? Do you do, uh, you know, and there's three ways basically. You can mark glass on the exterior, has to be on the exterior surface in a tiny, tight pattern that, you know, uh, uh, doesn't leave openings that birds think they can fly through or that the reflections aren't such that they fly into it. Or you can put screens, you know, shades, shutters, a barrier basically in front of that window. Those work really well and they have 2,000 year old architectural history, you know, to draw on as to what you might like to do. And then finally, you can replace that glass with a different strategy altogether. It might be something like, um, you know, where instead of exposing the glass straight out, you have like the fins that you used to get in modern architecture. Or you might have translucent panels. Or you might have top lighting. You know, so that's more for new development than it is remediating existing work. But there are ways to think about um, not exposing the gla- uh, birds to glass directly. You know, and, and I was thinking of like a horizontal side tooth pattern, but, anyway, mm-hmm. but that's so well. Those three strategies, I,
2: absolutely. Said. Yeah, the 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 bird glass thing is important, um, and I also stress when I talk about this that we haven't even invented all the solutions. That it's infinite how we could oh, address yeah. glass with uh, with birds, and that we're we've actually just stuck with the status quo of our current building mm-hmm. um, mm. environment to just keep going with this as billions of birds die per year. Um, I think it's so interesting the way that you talk about the different perceptual states of animals, Dr. Fisher. Um, uh, The way that I talk about it in my uh, more poetic, less science, uh, I'm not a scientist, I'm a citizen scientist, but I I talk about it as the light of time, that there is something that happens in our senses of perception. through the arc of the natural daylight cycle every day and every night. And so, there, you know, there's a moment that happens where you suddenly see the light is changing and it's dusk and it, it changes your perception of the moment. And I do not think it is a leap to talk about the different different perceptual states of animals. I think it is uh, arrogant to think that they don't have different perceptual states. Mm. And so I, I think um, I read your, your article, Enlightenment. It's a fantastically written article, listeners, and it's spelled I-N, Enlightenment. And it's definitely worth a read, and it really shows how far, I think, you are thinking outside of the box about what it's like to be a, a wildlife living thing on this planet, outside of the human perspective, far beyond survival. You know, it's very unromantic if we're only just talking about survival for species. Um, because if I lived every day trying to survive, that sounds like a very unpleasant life. Mm. So I, I think that's fantastic. And so, you know, you brought up Blackfish, and I know that you work in film and media. And so, can you talk about some of what you took, you, um, the work that you've done? You have a, an amazing film called Brilliant Darkness Hutaru in the Night. Um, and can you talk about the making of that film and what it did?
3: I can, I can. Um, with our, th- this would be sort of that third category of the things that you mentioned earlier, Mike, about uh, what we do with ZLI. Our photo diversity films are a way that we can um, open up dialogue and conversation and engage. It's really, um, uh, it's photo diversity because it really does try to speak to diversity Inclusion, access, and engagement, right? You know, DIAE, right? You know, is the the current acronym for that. But um, so our photo diversity films, it's been around for seven years now, I think. Um. Uh, initially, we were focused on documentaries, and I'll, I'll speak to brilliant dark, uh, brilliant darkness. That actually came about because of Emily Driscoll, as uh, a wonderful filmmaker. If you look at bonsai films, B O N. SCI uh, films. Uh, she makes a lot of different films. Uh, we were working in a co-working space, or I was working in a co-working space. I was introduced to her, uh, and she said, "Look, you need to make a film because you know it'll, it'll establish your legacy." And I have no concept of legacy. I have to say that right off. Even like the concept of survival, I I, I don't have that right. You know, I I don't know what that is because I don't really have that view of an afterlife. Right, so like survival and afterlife, they, they they just don't fit in, right? You know, other than as an anthropologist, right, or an archaeologist. But uh, but that being said, when uh, when Emily suggested we make this film, I said, okay, we're going to make a film, and but then I was invited, in my capacity uh, with the Royal Institute of British Architects, to speak uh, in uh, in Tokyo after the Tohoku quake, you know, after the Fukushima disaster right? 311. Um, I, I was invited to speak actually on light and lighting. And I was actually asked to speak saying that we need artificial light, right? That was the invitation. And and th- th- these were new things for me at the time, um, kind of. and And so, but I went and I looked at the situation. They were experiencing rolling blackouts. And my response at the time was, well, maybe you don't need as much as you think you do. And, and maybe we can start to redo this a little better because we're talking about community viability we're talking so so my response was, yeah, that's great, but that's not what I'm gonna talk about this right anyway dur- during the talk, there were two other speakers that struck me particularly. one was a photographer Ray Ohara, and the other uh, was uh, a teacher Nobuaki Ochi. and uh, Ochi became you know he joined our board and uh, he was. A representative of the International Dark Sky Association and he was pushing for dark sky areas. He had done a study monitoring light throughout Japan, uh, you know, looking at the different light pollution levels. Uh, So he he was really instrumental in that uh, at the time. Ray Ohara, for his part, uh, was a wartime photographer who had a difficult experience, to say the least, in Mogadishu. And So he he couldn't do it anymore because his anxiety was uh, 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 too much, right? So instead he turned to photographing fireflies and baby seals, right? And as a way to relax, he thought this would be great. So uh, anyway, I listened to the two of them speak and I had spoken to Emily a few weeks before this. And so I said, you know, if we're gonna do a film, let's do this the right way. We're gonna do it half in Japanese, right? Half English, half Japanese, because we want to respect the perspectives. Uh, and uh, for anime, I'm more of a sub guy than a dub guy. let will just say that right away. So I said, you know, uh, let's listen and see what things are here. right? And, and so we decided we would make our first photo diversity film following Ray Ohara as he photographed fireflies. And but and we were going to do it, again, half Japan, half the U.S. Uh, and, and that became the model for all of the photo diversity films. Every one has to have multiple languages in it. That, that's really a, a, a one of those breaking points for us. Uh, and, and the reason is to make everybody a little uncomfortable uh, and, and to have to listen a little more, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of that, you know, of, of making, you know. Uh, so anyway, we got on, the, uh, Emily and I, we got on the plane. We went to Tokyo, fought, went down to Kyushu. Uh, you know, Rayohara had his secret spot, you know, that he photographed. And uh, we went to a few places. On the plane on the way down, uh, and, and this was a, a, a slight faux pas on my part, but it, it worked out okay so I can say this. Um, I was looking at one of the tour guides in the back of the seat. You know, they have the, the in-flight magazines. And I saw that Takachiho was there. And now Takachiho is a, a, a sacred site, if I translate it that way, in uh, Shinto where the goddess Amaritsu, uh, uh, Amaratsu hid. Uh, from the other gods right uh a, a bit out of petulance in the original story but she hid and she was like the, the sun goddess right and they had to coax her out so it had always been something that was near and dear to my heart i, I knew this story uh, fairly well um and i but i saw it was in kyushu near where we were set to film so i changed the whole schedule on on, on the plane which isn't really something you do in japan i found out later but uh but i changed <laughs> the whole funny. schedule and i said this is what we're doing we're, we're going here so we did now, the reason I bring that up um, with Takashiho, it points out the emotional complications of light and the intricacies in how it's buried in you know, cultural heritage and, you know, but in a very personalized way, you know, listening to the petulance of Amaratsu as a sun goddess. You, you lose a little bit of this in different tellings of the story, but the one I first was exposed to was that. Um, it was very important because it related these emotional states to much bigger things like like a bigger, bigger in this. sense. Now I would actually put the emotional state first, but it, it puts things like light and environment and nature and survival in a context that's very much related to how uh, we engage with others. So we, we started off with that. That was like really one of the most important parts of that. Uh, film shoot for me. Um, The other aspects, Ray O'Hara, it turns out, uh, never really lost his anxiety. Uh, And and, and this is really the second point of this, um, that when we went out to film, he confessed that it was kind of nice to have a crew around him. Normally he would go out by himself. But he confessed it was kind of nice to have the crew around because it was comforting. To be in these remote spots where you can hear monkeys in the trees, you can hear, you know, the water rushing, which masks the sound. So you only get little glimpses of sound through the, you know, through the um, roads when cars pass by, and they do occasionally. Uh, it not only disrupts everything, which it, it's astounding, an astoundingly painful experience when a car drives hmm. past one of these sites. But it also you have the nerves of not knowing who's in that car. You know, and and so if you're out there by yourself, the anxiety is just awful, right? So anyway, the point of this is he had moved from one situation surrounded by anxiety into another, doing this work, seeking relaxation. You know, that the light was still very much, artificial light was still very much disrupting to that experience. Personal company wasn't. Right? So for me, what that meant is that you know this dialogue and engagement—it's a way to move past anxiety. Now, I say that's important, and this is turning into a long story. But I say this is really important because when we deal with something like light pollution, right, or we deal with artificial light—the expression "security light"—that's a misnomer. There's no such thing as a security light, right? Totally
2: agree. And, mm-hmm.
3: Right, it's it's a horrible misapplication. It's an inversion, right? Um, But when we talk about something like that, right, it it, it gets um, to the heart of the matter that we're really not fighting necessity here. Uh, As say, like, you know, if we say we want to reduce, reuse, recycle or, you know, um, uh, or any other environmental parameter, we're not fighting necessity. We're fighting aesthetics. Right. Because you can always find different ways. I'm very much a, a firm believer in creativity. Right, and I, I, I believe in like you know that people are smart, right, and 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 they if they let go of the things holding them back, you know, or if they're freed from them, like economic hardship, things like that, they're capable of creating incredible things. So you know, we're thinking about development and artificial light and glass and asphalt. You know, it's another big problem. If we think about all of this stuff, supporting people and freeing them from that anxiety is the primary task right that's the primary goal that that that, that, that's what we have to do our task
2: when you're talking about removing the anxiety in in, what do you mean because i i want to interject here Mm -hmm. um we had a we had a a guest on samyukta mani kumar Mm -hmm. and and she had a really interesting approach which was to say you know kind of like let people be and have the feelings that they're going to have. And Mm -hmm. as humans are diurnal and we're active during the day, most naturally, there is a natural fear, a helpful and useful fear of the dark. So when you say Mm -hmm. removing anxiety, what do you mean? Because I don't think we'll ever really truly remove it, which is partly why we have that feeling of awe, that discomfort, that sense of, so yeah, what do you mean about that?
3: Well, I would start off from a different position in that, you know, I wouldn't call fear of the dark natural or I wouldn't call humans Hmm. diurnal actually. Um, and the reason for that, if I look at other cult, that's a cultural preoccupation. I would say one, very much tied to the rise of the lighting industry. If you look back at, um, in different, uh, historical settings, cultural settings, right. Um, Interpretation of the stars, for example, right, you know, as fortune-telling. If you look at something like um, the Pantheon, right, you know, that Oculus, it's not there to see the sun. It's there actually to, to, div- to divine what the future of life is <laughs> around the movement of stars and planets, right? Um, so I, I would start from a very different place, right? Um, And when I say free from anxiety, I don't mean being freed from natural emotions, because I don't know what a natural emotion is, right? There are conditions that sets these things up. And, And a good explanation would be if I go to the movies and I watch a comedy, right? Now um, granted, people in the room will have different emotions related to that comedy. Some will feel pity, some will feel, uh, you know, anger, some will feel contempt, some will feel enthusiasm, some will feel joy, you know. There's a range that the same people will have in that room, very different relationships to that film. But all of it's been set up by the conditions of the film, right? That applies for me. Now, I'm not asking anybody to come with me on this. But that applies for me in general. Right. So if um, I, uh, uh, the way I always describe it to myself is that I didn't invent my language. Right. I didn't invent my language. It came from somewhere else and yet I can't imagine my identity without it. Right. You know, I have so many ways to describe the room around me, my experiences that are based in the words that I speak. There's no feeling apart from that. Right. Even though feelings generate and people will say, you know, you have nonverbal communication, all of that. That's fine. But they're all expressions and relations of expression to each other. So to me, that freedom from anxiety that I'm talking about. Right. What I'm talking about is freedom from un- very unnatural conditions uh, that create anxiety that are outside of myself. Yeah. Right. Hmm. So so I, I would I, I do. Obviously, I disagree on like certain, certain levels. But um, but it's really the freedom from unnatural conditions that are perceived as inevitable, but
0: they're not. That's amazing.
3: Right? I actually I, that, don't disagree
2: what with do. what you said at all. I think that's amazing, all. actually. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's a great way to say. You know, if you think about agriculture and the mm. sleep four hours, wake up four hours, it's true. Diurnal is probably too strong a word for what we are. So. I think it's, I think, I'm glad I asked. That was very clarifying. And Mike, you wanted to oh, jump in. I appreciate it. Yeah,
0: yeah I just wanted to, re, to just to confirm, because <laughs> I, I kind of got it answered by you and Jane there, just in the dialogue. But you're saying that the humans aren't necessarily a diurnal species, which I thought was an interesting mm-hmm. way to say it. You said not necessarily. You didn't say they weren't or they were, right? And the second thing that you said is that we're conditioned to fear the dark. That Jane, that's something that's never come up on the show before. We've, we've assumed that it's natural, that humans naturally fear the dark, and that's part of it. And there's also this awe experience that humans naturally have, and we'd like to restore the awe experience. But this is the first time I've ever heard. And I mean, you're a physicist, you're a scientist, you study these things. So I'm assuming this is coming from the, over the course of a career, you're coming to these conclusions mm-hmm. that, you know, hey, this fear of the dark thing, this may actually be something that's culturally created. Is that what you're saying? Uh,
3: absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, there, there's not even wow. a hesitation in my mind anymore. Hmm. You know, and, and the, actually, uh, a, a gentleman that I, I, I got friendly with over the years, his name is Travis Longcore, right? And most people know his book. It's called a Uh, He and Catherine, it was Catherine Rich's book, the two of them edited, right? Um, But uh, he actually pointed out, you know, that um, there was always a thing called second sleep in Europe, right? (laughs) And again, like you have to focus on very specific contexts. Um, But there's always a thing called second sleep, meaning that most people would wake up around one o'clock, maybe midnight, maybe a little later. And then for an hour or two, they would putter around, do the things they needed to do, right? And then go back to sleep. Um, but, it, again, it really depends on the specific cultural context. As for fear of the dark, I would say even like for contemporary life, right? You know, and uh, like sort of like modern fear of the dark. Uh, th- this actually speaks to a huge problem that I'm going to get to next. But, um, but if you ever think about how we treat little kids, right? If I have uh, an infant, right, you know, as a father or a one-year-old or a two-year-old, I I will put a nightlight in their room Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, you're gonna be afraid of the dark here. Let me put a nightlight so you can see, right? When actually, again, if you fall asleep under starlight and there's a shred of moonlight, you're actually much more sensitive to movement uh, and and you're more capable of dealing with threats. So for a baby, of course, that just means screaming and crying. You know, if something comes in, Hmm. it moves in the room. Um, But as adults, as contemporary modern adults, we will put nightlights in thinking that, oh no, that's not what we want. We're going to avoid that whole scenario of something moving, the baby crying. Right? So you put in this, these imaging functions, right? Um, and, and this gets back to that idea of state. So consciousness, um, I, I think one of the, uh, the challenges we have right now, when we talk about humans as diurnal, really what we're talking about in terms of applied photobiology is we're talking about uh, that photopic imaging, right? About imaging, you know, because at, at, at night when our eyes adapt, you know, down to the low levels and we're more motion sensitive, um, that's fine, but we don't see images. We don't resolve sort of that full-on optical information, right? We have a different kind of information that we process. Um, in the daytime, we, we see images, right? But when we talk about photopic vision, it's that imaging that comes first. So at night, if I'm using artificial light, it means I can image, right? I create images with my system. I don't respond to motion because we want to put that away from us, right? You know, threat response. We want to put that away. Um, Instead, we want to image because we can keep working. Right. And yesterday was Labor Day in, uh, in, in the U.S. Right. You know, and, you know, so like working, you know, there's, there's lots of sides to working, of course. Sure. But, you know, with something like reading or fine task or, or those kinds of things, right, that all depends on imaging in the way it's been set up. But it's not biologically uh, inevitable or relevant or even appropriate, you know, for the different times of day it's a move away from a fitness condition that survives and for a lot of reasons i mean it, it allows for expansion and you know and, and and growth but it's not necessarily healthy in the sense of providing a sustainable mode of engagement with the environment mm-hmm. so it fits labor but not sustainability mm-hmm. and you know so like that 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 you know and and it's a bit tricky because the You know the wording we again we all speak in words it's difficult to move to something else right but the idea of humans as diurnal it's really uh takes us away i think from what's going on in terms of these uh ecological relationships where you know that imaging is really what's going on so in a way like saying diurnal is a way to say oh we're imaging animals which is true, but it's only true in a certain industrial context, mm-hmm. you know? And, 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 and so that's, it's a bit different, so, you know? And, and again, and this isn't to say any political position like that. It's just, but it is lying out like a, a history of what's going on.
0: So I just want to follow up with another question. So the diurnal, so not a diurnal species, mm-hmm. so that, you know, they talk about the circadian rhythm, but is that, is it possible to postulate that the problem is not that people don't sleep at night? The problem is that they're exposed to electric light or artificial light at night
3: oh absolutely absolutely i mean and you know (laughs) the, the best example of this if you ever go to the beach and you know you lie down on the sand i don't know anybody who doesn't sleep you know if you're lying in the sand under the full baked sun you're gonna sleep the this is one of the reasons why we go to that integrative biology what's going on now sleep studies sleep's really important but the timing of sleep is very different from uh, the biological function, right? Timing and function are very different things. With the timing, with, when we say circadian rhythm, right, uh, essentially it, it is the light. You're absolutely right. It, it's, it's the light that's the issue. You know, you have hypersensitive, you know, light-sensitive ganglion cells in the back of your eyeball, and those tie into the pineal gland right? You know, uh, through the hypothalamus and the pineal gland, right? And, and, and that governs just that little bit of hormone cycling, but it's enough like a carburetor to change your whole system. So, but that's suppressed by light, right? That production is suppressed by artificial, by, by both artificial light or if daylight were 24 seven, you wouldn't have that, right? But you do. Um, it, it's the light that matters in the way we're talking about it for, Hormone cycling. So if we talk about mental health or reproductive health, environmental health, dietary health, um, you know, uh, any any of the the axes, the you know, the endocrine axis in the body, they're impacted by this. It all comes around that presence of artificial light. So technically, technically, if you had no artificial light, you could sleep in the day, function at night, You'd be absolutely fine. You know, in terms of circadian rhythm, you still have to sleep. It's just the when and the where. Another way to say this, and uh, I don't mean to harp on this, and Jane, I I I, I, I apologize because I know like where, where the comments come from sometimes. But w- with something like diurnal, if we were diurnal species, right, um, there would be no point in staying awake at night or or, or functioning hmm. at night. We would just keep that rest period. Um, I agree but-
2: with you. I- What I Mm. want to say is though, I think that you're right. Diurnal is, uh, and you've opened my eyes to this, is a limiting term and it's not accurate. I mean, we're also crepuscular. uh, We also Mm. are nocturnal because we're up till all ends. So the word is very limiting and it's a really good point. What I was trying to actually convey though, is that, you know, humans... By nature, are more comfortable in lit environments, um, de- mm. regardless of the time of day. And something that I advocate so much in my work is that we need to reacquaint ourselves with the beauty of the night, and that there's so much there that we're not that we're leaving behind. So I think your expansion of what humans are diurnal, nocturnal, crepuscular, or whatever other a- adjectives there are to describe activities during a time of day, I think you're so right that there's even been different models over time so i am i love your expansion of these definitions outside of the language that we've been given because that can also be limiting as you're saying we've adopted english as our language but it could be expanded and and renewed so i totally hear your point there and i think it's fascinating And what i was really just trying to say is that i think there's also an innate fear of darkness that we do have to work with and i i don't think it will go away as you said with your um the person who you worked with in japan said he never got rid of his fear of the dark because it's useful it's a useful emotion to wonder what the crunching behind you is but in the darkness that you can't see and now i'll give you a, a minute to jump in and i just want to wrap no, up so i'm going to give it's you sure your last I'm question sure. before you jump in with with that response but I, I just want to know in addition to what you're about to say why does night matter to all living things on earth and what is your great hope for zli in the future
3: uh okay i'll i'll, I'll follow through and, and i will i'll just kind of do my insert because you know like everybody you see. um with ray o'hara it's not the dark he's afraid of it's other people hmm because he saw what other people can do right? Mm, you know and and Mm. i I think it's a very legitimate fear actually Mm. over the years Mm. um and and so but you know the the the, it wasn't so much the darkness it was that um sort of that hedgehog dilemma of people getting close and far and you know trying to figure out that balance in the right environment um but that being said i think with zli um my goal for zli is actually to survive um, by leading appropriate conversations. And, and I say it that way because, you know, um, I, we don't need to be the new WWF or you know, WCS or, you know, we don't need, or Nat Geo, we don't need that. What we need to do is actually address fundamental uh, 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 community challenges, right? We're here to serve the community. You know, those we're nonprofit. So we're here to serve the community that means that our mission comes first in anything we do now i want financial success you know i think you know it'd be great if our films you know won you know anime awards and oscar awards going forward you know we didn't talk about like beached and our anime films but that's you know of course i want all that and, and i and i i want the funding you know so like if people are interested in applied photobiology right you know or or in the consequences of thinking about that in their decisions, right? To improve that, that's what I want. You know, I want to make sure that we build a community capable of uh, sustaining this mission for community good, you know, so it's supporting the sciences of light and life through the arts for animal welfare and wildlife conservation. Each one of those mission aspects is absolutely vital for a number of reasons, which would take another, you know, two hours to get into. But, you know, each one of those aspects, um, you know, science, arts, animal welfare, wildlife conservation, they're all important to attend to. That's that's why it's a complicated mission like that. So I think for ZLI, you know, I want to see the Zala stations adopted. I want one in Toronto, you know. Uh, I, I, I want to see one, you know, in you know, every country on the planet. And in fact, we're, we're on our road to getting there. Uh, we're in the process of securing a Waza membership, World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Uh, and we, we um, are a JAZA supporter uh, in Japan, Japanese Association of Zoos and Aquariums, an AZA conservation partner here in, in America. Uh, and, and we work with the Yatsa. As well, you know, and where uh, I shouldn't say work with. No, actually, no. I can't. I can't say work with. Um, but overall, though, the goal is to develop this conversation globally, using zoos and aquariums to reach audiences, to emphasize how important animals are and how important light is to those animals in their, for their daily lives. Things like mental health, food security. So, um, overall, with CLI, you know. It really has to be a forum for these conversations. That's really my goal. Uh, and by forum, I mean partner in dialogue. So that's, that's what we're about. And, you know, between the WASA membership uh, coming up, which I'm thrilled about, uh, and, um, you know, all of the other partners that we've developed and conversations here, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, all of this is really important going forward. So that's, that's what I want, you know, at the end of the day.
0: I have a a question that relates to the lighting industry. Um, So do you think, and I'm trying, we're trying to convince, so Jane and I both work in the lighting industry and we're trying to make the case for the restoration and preservation of natural darkness. But really Mm -hmm. I think that the lighting industry as it pertains to outdoor lighting should make that its single goal that you know, whenever we're to, whenever we're dealing with, it's not a secondary thought. It's not about the stars specifically, but that outdoor lighting and the lighting industry should be pursued through the lens of the restoration and preservation of darkness. Would you agree with that? And is there anything that you have to add to that?
3: Um, I guess you know, my my I, it's a great goal. I I, I say my uh, approach to it would be. Understanding the difference between natural light at a particular time, and the conditions you're facing, uh, and so rather than say having like task-oriented metrics, having have a difference metric, hmm. you know, and we and we can do that actually with Zala. you know, look look and and Dan uh, Nielsen, Danny Nielsen at Lund University is really kind of a, a good guide uh, in this in in looking at the field uh, fields of light. Um, With the lighting industry, I think that goal of understanding what it already has in natural light. Right. You know, so rather than a lighting industry to become a light industry, meaning that, you know, like in the daytime, you know, daylighting for buildings, really important, Um, you know, and again, it's a full range of light. Daylight is very important. I rarely talk about it because I don't need to. There's tons of people doing it, but. Thinking about you know how do you live indoors, right? You know when uh, you have these orders of magnitude that are really intense that we'd normally be exposed to, you know, but we live indoors now, right? So how do how do we how do we accomplish that, right? But the key and all and of course with nighttime, recapturing starlight, moon cycles, those are vital, right? Absolutely vital for human health, safety, and well-being, uh, to be able to recoup. Um, or or to recognize that natural light is the baseline, right? Rather than task being a baseline, natural light is the baseline. And for a lighting industry, and, you know, I, I say this often, I mean, for the light, lighting company that realizes that natural light comes first, it immediately gains an advantage. Now, that might mean that instead of simply selling lighting systems, It gets into things like contrast ratios, uh, material, uh, the optics of materials, which back in the 70s, we used to look very closely as architects and lighting designers, like Bill Lamb, like we mentioned Bill Lamb, uh, uh, you know, I I mentioned Bill Lamb a lot because I I got to work with him for a little bit back in the 90s. And, you know, you would focus on material uh, properties of light, right? We don't do that as much anymore. That's a mistake. So, it means for something like a lighting company, figuring out how to incorporate that light design through the use of material into its business model will have a huge advantage because at the end of the day, the products will be more efficiently used. So, rather than simply say, like, if, uh, and as an example, if I have a, a loading dock and I light the loading dock, without understanding the difference, say between a black asphalt tarp, you know, uh, you know, uh, ground, and a uh, a white concrete ground, and how that changes visibility, it changes the productivity both of the installation, you know, the finances of that first costs, and then operating costs. So if I'm able to incorporate those operating costs into the budget and the planning, set it on a plan with a client that you know gets a repeat client back you know so that it's not a one-off sale it's an ongoing relationship right there's a lot of money to be made there and 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 that's so i think with the lighting industry you're absolutely right recouping darkness very important right uh so uh, even if i don't use the word so like you know recouping um you know like natural like placing natural light first right but then doing it in such a way that realizing that every single material Object in a field, like in in a in a in a room in a landscape, they're all lighting fixtures. Right? This is kind of like the one of these like little physics observations. Whenever a material uh, is struck by electromagnetic radiation of you know mm-hmm. optical range, right? I mean it happens outside of that too, of course, but you know it, it doesn't simply bounce off; it's absorbed, mm-hmm. and the material emits new radiation, sure. which we see and pick up as light. That means that every single element <laughs> in a development is a light fixture. And the available light that's already there, right, is already creating that, you know, new range of lighting fixtures that you have to deal with. Now, you can either go in blindly to that, uh, which is the way it's done. You can go in blindly to that, you know, emissions of light from materials in space due to you know, um, know, due to ambient radiation, right? Ambient light. Or you can go in understanding it and then doing your installation in a way that's uh, complementary to that, Mm -hmm. that gets you what you're doing, but much more efficiently. And the efficiency leads to economic productivity because you're not wasting um, the sales. Uh, And and that makes less expensive projects products, both short term and long term for clients, it means that you can market to those clients in such a way that you're selling them, you know, cost efficiency in a real way. Because people are smart. You know, we always go back to this. People are smart. They will figure it out, you know, if, if it's laid out properly. Um, and the, so, so
0: anyway. Yeah. So you, it's interesting, Jane, I, like, he, you know, Dr. Fisher says what, you know, I say, it's a lighting boom. Let's get started on it, Jane. <laughs> Dark sky lighting boom. Let's go. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I think there's so much work to be done. And I love that you underscore that natural light is the baseline. How I often say it is the natural daylight cycle is our Rosetta Stone. And that that Mm. is really what we should be emulating and mimicking as much Mm. as possible in our work. So thank you so much, Dr. Fisher, for coming on. I think that you approach things so you just have a naturally different point of view. And it is extremely valuable to breaking apart our current method, which is not scientifically based. It is uh, based in ease and comfort of humans. And so I really appreciate how much you changed the language and your perspective and your angle into this topic. It's been fascinating to talk to you about it. So thank you.
3: Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. And I'm very grateful for the chance to come on. Um, I, I, would, I would give a pitch for the charity, you know, we're always in use of sponsors and, you know, either zli.org or www.zoolighting.org, you know, both of those work. Uh, but we, 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 are always looking to work with people, uh, as a way to move things forward. So love to be a charity of choice of, of the lighting industry, you know? So, but I, but I, but I, I said cause I've got to give the plug, you know, but thank you so of much. Course. I really
0: do appreciate your yes. time. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Starving for Darkness just finished up. Yeah, I love that show so much, Greg, Eric. What a, what a hot blaster. But, you know, we got to talk about Evluma, the supporters of Starving for Darkness. E-V-L-U-M-A dot Hover over products and click dark sky friendly lighting. The first, the magical Evluma brother.
1: That's right. They're doing it right and having the products you need to actually meet dark sky compliance or dark sky friendly facilities. They cover Kelvin temperature, lensing, diffusion, shields, dimming. Everything you need with two products: Area Max and Omni Max. So check that out.
0: Come on, folks. Go to evluma.com. That's e-v-l-u-m-a.com. Hover over products and click Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. The Magicians, Starving for Darkness, loves you. Thanks for listening. Bye
1: for now.